the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your usual host, Vincent Aiello, but this week we have something different on tap for you. Our friends over at Authentic Media, in cooperation with Cubic Defense, have assembled a 12-part series called On Future War, exploring the many challenges of armed conflict in the 21st century. Now, as a complement to our regular programming, we're going to air one new episode of On Future War each month, beginning this week, with some familiar voices to many of you, Roger and Paco, discussing how a possible conflict in the Pacific might draw lessons from the past while incorporating current and emerging technologies and considerations. So enjoy this first installment of On Future War from Authentic Media, and I'll catch you back here next week for another episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Take it away, Roger. Today, emerging technologies are expanding the geometry of the battlefield, in transforming how we think about, prepare, and plan for war. Mark Esper, AUSA Annual Meeting, October 2020. Welcome to On Future War, a 12-part series sponsored by Cubic Corporation that will delve into the critical issues surrounding peer-level conflict in the near future and beyond with a particular focus on the Indo-Pacific region. On Future War will feature a mix of guests from the military, industry, tech, and government to discuss how new, emerging, and future technologies will likely affect peer-level conflict in the near future and beyond. The series will begin with episodes on securing operational mobility, such as how to defend against power projection, and securing sea, air, and land battle space in the littorals, before moving to tactical technologies such as fifth-generation aircraft, unmanned platforms, and warship development, then followed by concepts of strategic support with episodes focusing on long-range logistics, supply chain and attrition issues, and vulnerabilities in high-tech before concluding with techno-political issues such as artificial intelligence and machine learning, and how these must be managed to successfully control escalation and de-escalation on the battlefield. Woven throughout these topics are the enduring concepts of information and decision dominance, assured communications, and advanced training environments, all of which will be required to prepare for and prevail on future battlefields. The future is now. This is Authentic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to On Future War, presented by Cubic Corporation. This is a multi-part series about the challenges of peer-level conflict in the Indo-Pacific region, specifically the PACOM region. We'll be discussing a number of topics about the future of peer-level warfare as it relates to technology and strategy. With me today is Mike Paco Benitez, host of the Merge podcast and editor of the Merge newsletter. Hello, Paco. You want to give everyone a brief introduction? Well, first, thanks for having me, um, Roger or Scott, the guy with two first names. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's call you Roger. 
Uh, Roger, works. Roger, Roger. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I have an Air Force background, mostly also served in the Marine Corps. Uh, total of 25 years active duty. I'm a uh, Strike Eagle backseater uh, by trade, and I've done uh, tours pretty much everywhere, uh, operationally and in staff tours in Congress, uh, the Pentagon, DARPA, Silicon Valley, and operational test. Awesome. And uh, I'm Scott Roger Chafian, 20-year naval officer, uh, surface warfare background, and anti-terrorism, served in all major AORs similar to PACO, have a background in strategic planning and joint operations, both on the educational side through the Army Command and Staff College, and then multiple deployments attached to the Army overseas. And what we're here to talk about today very specifically is in a peer-level conflict, specifically using the PACOM area of responsibility or AOR, how do we defend against power projection? Because the last major peer-level war the United States was involved in was World War II. And very specifically, we fought a war in the Pacific that could be very analogous to any potential future war with a major power uh, on the Asian mainland. So we thought we'd start by talking about What's different and what's the same in uh, in the modern milieu, if you will? So, Paco, let's start by talking about the Chinese three island chain or third island chain strategy, depending on whose terminology you want to use. Uh, can we go ahead and define what that is? Sure. The well, first of all, it's it's our it's our lexicon is where it came from. So the United States actually. Um, coined the term in the early 1950s. So it goes back a long ways. Uh, and it was actually a part of a maritime containment strategy against the Soviet Union during the Cold War. So um, how can we string together these these dots of land in the Pacific to basically encircle um, and contain Soviet expansion of, of communism? So that's how it started. Um, it kind of fell out of favor for probably 20 years, 30 years, and it kind of came back uh, with a new application, which is against... Uh, how do we um, project power in the Pacific with China as a rising power? And so that's where it came from. The the three, you could basically think of the three chains is uh, the first island chain is c- kind of anchored by Taiwan, which is about 100 miles off the coast of China. And then it kind of goes out, it's stringed together a bunch of islands, north and south, uh, out to about 300 miles. So anything inside of 300 miles, you're, you're talking first island chain. When you get to the second island chain, huge leap in distance. The second island chain is Guam, anchored by Guam. Again, north and south, it, it kind of goes from um, basically central Australia uh, up through Guam. It's about 2,000 miles away from mainland China. And then the third island chain is anchored by Hawaii. That's 5,000 miles away. So these are incredible distances we're talking about. Um the second island chain and the first island chain are most of the conversations that happen. The third island chain is mostly uh, logistics and kind of theater support and, and some command and control because obviously Hawaii has a lot of military headquarters for uh, the Navy uh, as well as the combatant commands. And this is very analogous to what we saw in the Pacific and World War II, where Japan had a strategy of taking enough ground is the wrong term, but territory battle space in the Pacific to essentially bleed America to the point where 
we would not want to continue the fight and would eventually sue for peace. And, and regardless of whether you're looking at uh, forces moving west to east or east to west, it's exactly the same concept. So we, we have some background here and a point of departure for the discussion because we know how that worked out, uh, you know, 80 some odd years ago, but a lot has changed since then. So you can't, you can't look at that and just prepare for the last war. So I could just say what's different, but that opens an entire <laughs> can of worms, right? Because almost everything is different. Yeah, but if you if you flip the script, though, and if you go back to World War II and you look at Japan, Japan was projecting power in the Pacific, and ultimately they lost, right? Uh, so what were they, they were projecting power for a very specific reason, and the reason that they were projecting power, again, it's a means to an end, it was to deny staging of forces close enough to strike Japan, mainland Japan. So they were basically building a bubble of sanctuary around them. So they were projecting power to have that that buffer uh, region. And so to counter that, the U.S. had the island hopping campaign. So it's it's doing uh, dozens of naval battles uh, to enable the retaking of these little dots of land as a way to hop your way into striking distance of mainland Japan. And so huge the context matters because when you flip the script and we go there's a reason we should be projecting power to begin with and then is it sustainable how do you defend against it which is really the point of the episode right exactly and because since the end of world war ii we meaning the u.s has essentially said we're we're gonna make sure we have forward bases and we did back then too and modern united united states pacific strategy includes forward basing in multiple different areas it also includes a strategy that's based around carriers so that's one thing that while similar to some extent is also completely different so let's just take a moment to talk about carrier warfare very briefly they have traditionally been the linchpin of american uh border not borderline but uh, the transition between diplomacy and combat I don't really want to use the term gunboat gunboat diplomacy, but for several generations now where the carriers has been at least an apocryphal potentially refrain of U.S. presidents in responding to a crisis. And they're also one of the first forces we use to project power. But unlike 70, 70 to 80 years ago, we're worried about far more than simply opposing carriers or staying outside the reach of land-based air support because the definition of land-based air support has grown to really encompass the entire globe. There is no place in the world anymore that is too far to be struck by a land-based weapon. Would you agree with that, Paco? Yeah, and it's a good point. Um, When you talk about carriers... Carriers are very, very important uh, strategically, uh, whether it's a show of presence, a show of force. Uh, you have you know four and a half acres of national sovereignty that you can move around, uh, which is great um, from a, a tactical and a, a strategic perspective. But it still needs land. You know, we had an island hopping campaign in the Pacific, and uh, I, I was I forgot the exact number, uh, but the Allies had something like 180 aircraft carriers in. In the World War II, the U.S. had like three dozen aircraft carriers, and they lost probably a third of them in, in you know, sunk. Um, but they still need land to uh, to either sustain the carrier or to move forces. 
because uh, ultimately, you know, control of the land is typically, again, there's your, your plug for the army. <laughs> They'll talk about control of the land. That is what wins wars typically. And obviously there's different types of strategies, you know, annihilation, attrition, um, exhaustion, dislocation, that kind of stuff. But yeah, the, the aircraft carrier is, is a key part, uh, has been a key part of that, but you know, it's big. Everyone knows where they are. They're, they're not really hiding anymore. And, uh, they, they do have significant vulnerabilities and that's just the boat. We're not even talking about the forces on the ship. So, right. Right. And that's, I think that's key. But to your point, we are terrestrial creatures as humans. So land masses matter, even if they're small ones. And from the beginning of, of the U S Navy's time, we needed to take land bases to support our ships at sea and nothing has changed about that. That's right. So that's right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's where the forward basing to some extent comes in because the, the closer you can make that base to the fight, the less logistics train you have to support, the more tooth you have, uh, for example, to the tail. Uh, you know, anyone who's deployed on a ship in the Western Pacific realizes how frequently you're refueling and how much fuel it takes to get you that fuel to continue moving forward. So to that end, we've we've got these forward bases. And depending on how you look at them, if you're opposed to the United States, they're a threat, they're, they're a potential dagger in your side. And if you're a, the U.S. or a U.S. ally, they're an asset that's also a vulnerability. So let's talk about, you know, what are the major forward bases in the Pacific that we're talking about? Uh, okay. Well, you have, well, m- just to be clear, most of these bases were established generations ago. Um, some of them we've, we've abandoned or trying to come back to uh, based on the rise of China. But we have, uh, starting in the north, uh, Japan and South Korea, uh, heavy, heavy pre- presence there, mostly from the Korean War. We uh, we stayed. <laughs> uh, so that, there's that. Um, the Philippines, we used to have a very strong presence there. Um, and Roger, you might have actually ported there before. I'm not sure. But we, uh, we left, and we're trying to restore relations and come back. Um, Guam is a strategic outpost in a, a, a U.S. territory. Um, again, that's anchored in the second island chain, so it's kind of far away. Um, we have uh, forces in Singapore a little bit, and then really Australia is probably our strongest, biggest, most powerful ally in the region. Uh, and, and you think of them, they think of this as a, as a north-south fight, if you will, where we kind of view it as an east-west fight. So it's an interesting perspective. But most of our forces, to your point, are in Japan and, and Korea right now. Right. And historically, those have always been safe havens, especially Japan. Clearly, if you know anything about the Korean War, uh, you you couldn't consider South Korea in, in the first six months to eight months of the, of the war as a safe sanctuary. But as time went by, and, and definitely in the 70-some-odd years since then, Korea has been seen as a safe sanctuary. Safe sanctuary. Definitely Japan, places like Kadena, Guam, we've considered these to always be um, just uh, defensible is not even the term. There just wasn't even a threat. There was no one that could bring naval power to bear. There was no one that could bring air power to bear. And now that is changing with the forward progress of technology. And, and some of the things that are on the cutting edge, if not in technology, at least in public consciousness, are 
cruise missiles and hypersonic missiles. And hypersonic missiles, I, I should point out, in, encompass both cruise and glide missiles. So, Paco, I know you're you're very embedded in this. Could you define what is a hypersonic missile? And apart from the sheer physics of its flight and speed, what makes it so different and so challenging from a military perspective to counter? Ooh, great question. Uh, I, I'll, I'm going to answer that, but I I'll, I just want to put a another plug in what you to uh, double tap what you were saying. <clears throat> so, um, in Korea. When you look at the ability to strike, like, well, North Korea obviously wants to, has ill will towards South Korea. And that's why all the U.S. bases are not near the TMZ. <laughs> uh, right. And, you know, North Korea, um, it, it technically has the ability to strike those U.S. bases, but that's not the strategy. The strategy is to build a ICBM with a nuclear warhead to attack the mainland United States. Right. So just because it can doesn't mean it would. Uh, and the same thing with China and, and Japan. Like no one would have thought 30 years ago that air bases or, or navy navy shipyards in Japan would would be at risk of being attacked by China. Like no one would have thought that. And now right. it's like, oh, you it's all in striking distance. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and there are defenses for that. Um, but we're we're which is a good segue into this with cruise missiles. So when you look at um, like so, North Korea has—they're building an ICBM, so it's an intercontinental ballistic missile. So it's going to go up hundreds of miles. So think of where the International Space Station is. An ICBM gets that high; it, sh- it goes way, way, way up, and it has this very predictable path. And um, based on some math and some technology uh, that is very well understood by the military, when you see an ICBM launch. Within 30 seconds, you can predict where it's going to hit, which is like fantastic, right? So I know that this missile is going to take 20 minutes to get somewhere. I know exactly where it's going. Um, and actually, that's kind of how the Iron Dome works. It, it calculates trajectory, goes, here's where it's going to land, and then, it, and then it plots the intercept. So that's how missile defenses work for um, ballistic missiles, right? So it's very predictable ballistic profile. That's why where the name comes from. Now they get they're still fast. So, like an ICBM up in the uh, when it's out in the uh, out of the atmosphere, it's it's hitting like Mach twenty. So th- so this these are hypersonic speeds, um, but they're ballistic. Now what's different is when we talk about which is almost a, a misnomer, but hypersonic um, cruise missiles. There's really different. There's actually two different types. There's um, hypersonic glide vehicles, so HGVs, and then you have hypersonic cruise missiles, which are HCMs. They're uh, they're two different classes, uh, but they have kind of the same end state in mind. So the first one is the glide vehicle. So think of this as, I'm going to put this uh, hypersonic weapon on top of um, an ICBM. So I'm going to shoot it up like a cruise missile or a ballistic missile, and it's going to detach, and it's going to re-enter Call it, you know, if I'm, I'm trying to get from point A to point B, halfway between point A and point B, it's going to actually uh, descend back down, pick up a whole bunch of speed. And so remember up in that in the, in the atmosphere, you're talking Mach 20 or so, maybe Mach 10, and then it comes back down. And it, it slows down a little bit, but it's still pretty freaking fast. And and as it comes down, it's it's flying a profile, kind of like a cruise missile, where you, it has points it can go to. It's, it's maneuverable. And that is the key, key difference. And, and the reason is you can't predict the intercept point of something that can maneuver while it's in flight, whether it's um, 
pre-programmed or not. You don't know how it's programmed. And so it could be pointing, you know, one direction and you plot an intercept point and you deploy uh, uh, an intercept weapon or vehicle. And then it changes course. Even like even a 20 degree change of a course is monumental for these intercept points, like hundreds of miles. So that is the that is what makes them so hard to defend against. And then uh, the hypersonic cruise missile is just how it sounds. It doesn't get shot way up in the air. It stays relatively uh, low altitude-ish, so in the atmosphere, and it, it either sustains um, or it, it'll sprint to get to that hypersonic speed. But most, uh, when we talk hypersonic weapons, most of them don't stay hypersonic the whole time. They change uh, altitudes and airspeeds pretty dramatically. Right. So a couple things to look at there, and an ICBM, if you will, is if you're at the the ballpark and a guy hits a long fly ball to center left, right? And the outfielders aren't right there in position. You see the the fielder go off on a dead run, right? Because the computer that it is is his brain and the programming that is years of experience tells him, I see this ball on this arc and I'm going to flat out run to get to a point to catch that fly ball. And and they tend to, right? That's That's sort of what happens. A hypersonic, especially in the glide vehicle, what you're describing, why something like the Iron Dome, for example, would have such a challenge is imagine that fly ball, if it takes that arc and sets that outfielder off on his dead run and halfway through its arc, it's able to pivot, like you said, 20 degrees and potentially even 20 degrees in the worst possible direction, meaning back the way that the fielder came from. So that's that's one challenge is the intercept geometries, physics, and targeting are so much harder. Uh, that That's one piece. The other piece is, in a way, it changes the calculus of everything we've done for the past 50 years in terms of defense planning. Because, it, you know, I think everyone's uh, familiar with mutually assured destruction. They're familiar with anything from movies like uh, going way back to are the youth like war games, right? Or the, uh, you know, to your point earlier, when within 30 seconds, we knew where these missiles were going. And there was, because of that, there was a feeling that, well, no one's going to launch one of these unless it's a test without giving people a lot of heads up because it's going to become very apparent very quickly that this is a really bad thing and for exactly who it's targeted against, so on and so forth. This is changing that calculus and that leads to instability, right? Because militaries like stability. Planners like stability. They they like to know what's going to happen. And what this means is the advent of a hypersonic glide vehicle in particular means a boosting rocket now is no longer necessarily going to be ballistic and it takes us a lot longer to figure out where it may be going. That's the first part of the it's hard to defend against equation, right? Yeah. Yeah, that that that's right. That the time also the time, right? So they're unpredictable, but then the the if you want to call it a kill chain, the just the the kill chain cycle is so short. So it where you may have had um dozens of minutes to make a decision, you may have one one minute to, to decide like what's actually going on here. And we're not even talking about nuclear tipped hypersonic weapons, which is a whole different discussion. Right. We're talking conventional still. And, you know, we can see that the 
very nature of a hypersonic weapon, especially the glide vehicle or even the cruise missile, uh, is adding to some of that instability. And then there's just the sheer physics of trying to defend against something that moves that quickly. Uh, the, and I'll speak from where my experience lays, which is with the Navy, obviously, and defending against anti-ship cruise missiles. Staying on the unclass level, we sort of reached a peak where supersonic, not hypersonic, somewhere in the Mach 2-ish, I'll just leave it there for open source, was the threat you were dealing with, an incoming threat at Mach 2-ish, and how do you deal with that? And the U.S. Navy and Western navies and Western defense contractors and researchers came up with some pretty solid solutions to that. And you can see them, everything from the SM-2 family of missiles, which are sort of the large, longer range, high speed. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, you have things like SeaWiz close in weapon system. Uh, Goalkeeper is a European name for a, a similar but different system. Uh, things like the rolling airframe missile were all designed to counter different aspects of a supersonic incoming cruise missile and the different geometries and challenges those provided. Yeah, and I'd say We've that worked- you're, <laughs> Go ahead. One, one of the nuances there, and I'm glad you brought it up, you know, the difference between a, you know, call it a Mach 1 problem and a Mach 2 problem, it's twice the speed. It's not twice as hard. It's like orders of magnitude harder. Right. So, oh, it's it's a definitely a geometric progression of, of how you deal with that. Yeah, uh, when you go from Mach 2, like you're talking about, to maybe like a Mach 4 threat, Again, that's not twice as hard. It's probably 10 times harder. Right, right. And it's time, 10 times harder in terms of everything. And again, I want to make sure I keep this unclass. But if you look at open source on why, for example, the rolling airframe missile exists, which is essentially sort of a hybrid between a rocket and a bullet, right? It's it's a kinetic kill weapon. It's a direct fire. There's no climb to altitude. There's there's no anything else. At some point, we simply don't have the technology right now to economically manufacture a surface-to-air missile that can maneuver quickly enough to defeat a rapidly maneuvering threat without tearing itself apart. Yeah, you had the same problem a little bit with defending against ICBMs as well, right? So you have, again... If that one ICBM gets through the defenses, like that's not good. And so, like right. the, <laughs> when you look at decoys and redundancies and and probability of hit the kills, and you know you're, uh, I won't say the actual numbers, but you're, it's not a one to one exchange. You're not deploying one thing to shoot down one thing. It's you know five, ten ish, you know, ten to one call it. So if you're deploying ten countermeasures to to make sure you can you know with certainty negate one. Well, now if I have two <laughs> threats <laughs> like oh well i'm out of i'm out of ammunition right <laughs> right I, you know where where we had some solid theory on this right I, I think everyone would agree by the height of the cold war in the 80s we knew what the soviet threat was the soviets knew what the u.s threat to them was and so for example you look at a carrier they were battle groups back then but a carrier strike group back then and you had a ring of steel around it. You had multiple ships. You had Aegis ships coming online. You had literally the mid 
hundreds. What I mean by that is is probably close to 500 missiles surrounding a carrier strike group. And that's because we knew that we were going to shoot at least one missile per target. We knew that as they got closer, we would shoot two missiles per target because you didn't have time to assess and take another shot. And we knew that the Soviets do all this and would launch feints and would launch decoys and so on and so forth. And as we're recording this and, you know, there's there's a second carrier strike group on its way to the eastern Mediterranean for something totally unrelated to the Pacific, but uh, the current situation in Israel and the Gaza Strip. But when you look at those strike groups, they've come way down in the terms of number of escort ships because the world changed and we weren't expecting to see multiple backfire and badger raids. Well, in the in the Pacific, we may be looking now at a resurgence of that. We just need a lot of missiles to throw at the threat because we know we don't have time to discriminate between those decoys. And that that's another thing that makes this really difficult. So, you know, we've talked about the hypersonics. We've talked about the forward basing. I don't want to say that the advent of technology makes those forward bases untenable. But I, I think that's that's too strong a statement. But I do think we need to be in a mindset where we consider what if we lose access to those forward bases? Because that can mean a lot of different things. It doesn't mean they're destroyed. It doesn't mean they're completely un- inoperational. Maybe they've just been degraded to the point we can't um, use them in the way that we have become accustomed. So if we do that, what options do we have for projecting power into the Western Pacific? Well, first, I just want to say that bases are important and, you know, showing up matters. So being there matters. Yeah. Uh, When you, when you leave an area, uh, there's obviously placement and access, there's relations and allies and partners. There's a whole bunch of reasons why being there is important. Um, being too comfortable being there, I think, has become the issue. Um, we have these, you know, uh, <laughs> think of a, a, in my mind, you know, an airbase in Japan, I can go to the Chili's, you know, they have a Chili's there, a restaurant, you know, <laughs> like, this is not, like, this is a presence, you know, placement and access. These are not things that we probably want to do a sustained campaign uh, against a theater uh, adversary with, uh, because they're targets obviously um so the the air force it's it, it's uh it's interesting we'll see how it shapes out but the air force for the past few years is like hey we're you know our bases are big juicy targets and we don't actually have air defenses against most of these bases uh little known fact uh because it's the army's job and the army divested of all their short-range air defenses during during uh afghanistan and iraq uh, to save money so uh the air force is like hey um even if we had these air defenses to your point, like we have magazine depth and like, what if it doesn't work and all these like options, like we have to get off, like, get off the fob, right? Get off the base. At some point we have to get off the base. So, um, ACE is the air force's concept, agile combat employment. And this is, we're going to distribute forces away from these big vulnerable bases. We're going to basically disaggregate our forces. And so they're smaller, leaner and, um, spreading that footprint out over uh, in the region and then bring it back together when we need to. Uh, there's a hub and spoke uh, system that kind of goes with it. There's a few concepts that kinda, they, they change it every now and then. Um, and and it's, uh, it's all anchored off of logistics. Like there's only, if we're talking about aircraft, like aircraft have like, well, 
the class of aircraft that the United States Air Force has requires like a certain distance of straight paved, like, you know, concrete, whether it's a road or a runway, uh, it requires a certain type and quantity of fuel. It, it, it requires, you know, weapons. And so where those weapons and fuel and, and those, those stretches of concrete are, uh, obviously in the Pacific, it, it sounds, it looks like a lot of water, but there actually are, when you, when you think of it that way, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of options out there. So you go from having like, Hey, I've only got five bases to, Hey, I have 50 options, which is now I'm spreading my footprint uh, for the adversary. And so does the adversary have the magazine magazine depth to just hit all five bases at once? Like, sure. Can they hit all 50 locations at once? Probably not. And so it becomes a, it's a strategic uh, move. Um, so placement and access uh, is a key part of that, which is why being in the theater matters. So that's ACE. The Marine Corps has a very, very similar concept. Um, they call it EABO, Expeditionary Advanced Base Operations. It's the exact same concept, um, but it's not aircraft. It's their forces. So they're going to uh, disperse their forces uh, inside the first island chain in austere temporary locations and then bring them back together at a time and a place of the choosing um, to execute the missions that they're tasked with. And those aren't necessarily direct engagement missions. That That's a big difference. <laughs> uh, those are uh, uh, either like sea control or denial or supporting other, um, whether it's maritime domain awareness, so like sensing, forward sensing, that kind of stuff. It's not actually Marines, you know, uh, with rifles shooting, uh, although it could be. But right now, that's not how they're thinking of it. And so that's that's the Air Force, the Marine Corps, and then the Navy's going to do what the Navy has done for the past 70 years, which is use strike groups and amphibious ready groups and trade a little bit of that magazine depth and sustainability for the defensive mobility, right? You obviously can't move an island, even a small one, uh, but you can move your forces rapidly uh, with agility, which is, I think, what we see the Marine Corps especially and also the Air Force looking at is that uh, agility to displace faster than an opponent can target you uh, over those long distances. Yeah, the, but the, of course the chat. Yeah, the it's interesting. So the, what I think is different about the Marine Corps and the Navy in this aspect is the Marine Corps. Their concept is we're going to get off the boats, and the boat is the logistics, right? Um, is it? So you you can see that, and the boat moves, so that's good. Is it? Uh, where the Navy, the logistics is land. And so those right. those ports, are, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. Uh, yeah. If you anyone who spent time at sea knows just how much logistics are required to keep something going. So although a, an, air, a, an aircraft carrier is nuclear powered, the aircraft aren't. <laughs> they need jet fuel. Right. Like the humans, there's five thousand people that need food. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in water, it, it, there's you know there is a lot that goes into that. And so the yeah. shipping. The, the logistics, like the merchant marines and all, all the uh, <laughs> underway replenishment and how that works is incredible. Well, those ships don't just magically show up. They originate <laughs> at some ports, and all those ports are very, right. very well known. And so the although the, the carrier itself is a, is a means of projecting power, it has like significant logistic vulnerabilities uh, outside is of it? you know a week, call it. You know, it can do something for about a week or two, right. and then that's it. Right. And uh, you know, fuel, as you said, weapons, right? Those those carriers are expending ammunition in combat. They're expending bombs and missiles and so on and so forth. And to your point, I, I think 
I think people look at air refueling and we can think, I'll think about, I think the first one that probably hit public consciousness was El Dorado Canyon, the raid on Libya in 1986, where the Air Force had to use tankers to refuel other tankers to refuel the strike aircraft to keep it going. And, and people conceive of that because, uh, you know, people have taken uh, civilian airline airline flights across the Pacific. They understand. I think it's more conceivable. I th- My perception is for people outside the nose, so to speak, those people who aren't actual planners, they go, well, the U.S. Navy has underway replenishment, and they sort of hand wave that away, not realizing that a lot of times you have to have an oiler, and that's the, the difference between an oiler and a tanker in, in maritime terms, is a tanker transports fuel to a shore base for someone else to dispense it. An oiler provides fuel to other ships at sea. Well, you need oilers to support the oilers to get true forward projection. That That's how it's done. And it, it makes sense, right? You're not going to send an oiler all the way back to San Diego to top off its bunkers to cruise all the way back across the Pacific, right? You're going to use a tanker to bring it to Hawaii and maybe then an oiler to go from Hawaii and refuel the battle group or strike group oiler. So that all of that we know how to do. Do we have the the well depth, if you will, on those to sort of uh, spin off magazine depth? That's a subject of great debate. But I think to your larger point, you know the finite set of nodes that those oilers have to leave from. So as we start to talk about how would an opponent defend against our power projection, it may not be trying to hit our forces square in the jaw, right? It it may be sweep the leg, if you will, and and go and try and find those nodes. And, you know, so there's a lot that we have to look at here. And the question becomes, how do we defend against those attempts? And I, I have a question that we can debate because I don't think there's a firm answer yet, which is... Now that we're talking about hypersonics, meaning specifically the glide vehicles and the cruise missiles, not not the ballistic missiles and their warheads, historically technology has followed, military technology has followed a path that's fairly consistent. And the shortest example I can give is the arrow gave way to the longbow, which became the dominant weapon to some extent of mass destruction uh, to the point where it could overcome armor and people stopped wearing that armor until they got to a point where they figured out armor that could defeat the longbow and or I'm sorry until they yeah armor that could defeat the longbow and then uh, black powder firearms came along and people determined well you can't really make armor that defeats those and we're sort of at an equilibrium point now you can carry some armor on a person that will defeat a firearm, but you can't completely encase yourself. So if we expand that out to where we are with hypersonics, and I think we pretty much were maybe at an equilibrium point with supersonic weapons and defending against them. I, I think either side had a fair chance of defending. Are we at a point with these hypersonics where we've reached a technological pause uh, per chance, which is okay, hypersonics are going to give the advantage to the attacker who employs them? Or have we reached a plateau where we need to come up with a whole new technology to counter that? 
well, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. It's an opinion at this point. Yeah, I think technology and tactics kind of go hand in glove. Uh, I'm a big proponent of both. Um, if you if you just do one and not the other, uh, which is kind of how most of the military is set up, we have people who just do tactics and people who just buy technology, and uh, the intersection of that is a lot uh, a lot less than you'd imagine. Uh, but to your point, so uh, I'll take your bullet analogy and take it one step further. So the the advent of a uh, a non round bullet. So we went from a the round bullet to a shaped bullet with a with a rifle and bore that completely changed tactics because before you could just get in a line and walk and the bullets were so inaccurate and such a, a you just shoot at the group of people and hit no one maybe right where when the bullet changed now they just became uh is the firing squad like so you had to change tactics to adapt just because of the shape of the bullet changed and that was you know mid uh mid 1800s uh ish mm-hmm. right not about sort of i think for us probably civil war ish yeah. is what yeah, we realized war. the futility yeah yeah, yeah. And, and interestingly um and this is where it matters is if you don't appreciate that nuance in the change um when the united states got involved in world war one the formations the initial formations that the army and marine corps fought in were from the civil war and that lasted like you know two weeks, uh, three weeks. And then they saw what everyone else was doing because they'd been fighting in the theater for you know three years or so at that point. They're like, oh, yeah, we need to update our tactics because the technology has changed. We are not appreciating it. So, and we're seeing that play out in Ukraine um, right now. Um, there's a lot of lessons that, you know, you put technology on the battlefield. All wars, eventually, if they, if they persist, they will become engineering wars. And those engineering wars have adaption and tactics and it's that fusion of all of that together. Um, it in in peace, it's really hard to forecast how you how you can manufacture this synthetic pressure, this will to win, to be able to think through and get creative. Um, and you see it playing out in Ukraine, like the creativity that's just coming out, uh, you know, week by week of new ways to to put things together and disruptive ways that we can, uh, you know, advance a line or protect something. It's really hard and pieced to do that, uh, and, and again, I think that's a nuance that's kind of lost, and that's why you you, you hear a lot of uh, military leaders say, "Oh, look at all these lessons learned that we're seeing in, in Ukraine." Like, well, they're not they're not necessarily lessons learned. They're you're seeing adaption manifest under like significant pressure uh, that you just can't really replicate in a training environment. Right. It, it's very difficult in combat to say we'll put that in an out year. yeah exactly we'll think about in the next fight up (laughs) that's right so you know i'm glad i'm glad you answered the question in that way because i think it's not a kinetic technology challenge that is our answer right now it might be once once the lead starts flying so to speak and i think increasingly uh it won't be lead right that'll just be an anachronism like uh wooden ships and iron men but how do you win Right now, and I I think it comes down definitely not exclusively, but there are three areas that can be leveraged to enhance your chances of victory. One is information or decision dominance, uh, understanding what's going on and conveying that uh, information, and then the assured communications that allow 
the transfer of that information and those decisions. And lastly, a way to train that allows you to train with fidelity, but also is adaptable enough that you're not tied to a specific methodology that when you find out what you thought was true has been overcome by events, if you will, your training methodology is no longer valid. So let's let's take those one at a time and I'll jump in with information and decision dominance and you know, being a history guy, I'll give two examples from the last peer level conflict in the Pacific. Uh, if people aren't familiar with the HMS King George V and the HMS Prince of Wales uh, sinking early, early, first several days of the Second World War, they were sunk by Japanese land-based bombers. And, and keep in mind, we're talking about a battleship and a battle cruiser that were the pride of the British fleet. The Prince of Wales had been in on the hunt for the Bismarck. Uh, these were considered just massive capital ships, and there's no way that they're going to be vulnerable uh, unless they face another ship in the line of battle. And the Japanese were able to sink both of them with land-based air power because the the paradigm was just not well understood. Perhaps it should have been. Uh, Billy Mitchell has entered the chat, if you will. But uh, that was an example of the information was there, and it could have been read, I think, but it wasn't. And because of that, there were decisions made by the British to send these ships into what was harm's way and was not perceived to be harm's way. If you fast forward about seven months from that to the Battle of Midway, the U.S. had managed to break the Japanese codes. They were inside the Japanese information and decision loop, and it allowed the U.S. and whole books, movies, obviously all sorts of uh, information on the Battle of Midway. I'm only going to touch on it to say not to take away from the heroism of those involved. That victory for the U.S. Navy was entirely predicated on information and decision dominance. We knew where the Japanese were planning to strike. We knew about when, in fact, the famous five minutes, five degrees, uh, five miles of of the estimate of where the Japanese fleet would be detected. And then the decision dominance that allowed the admirals involved to tell their forces, this is what we are going to do. I have the information. I have the ability to make a decision. I'm going to make that decision and even if it wasn't promulgated to all the right places at the right time, the subordinate commanders had enough of the picture they could make their own decisions. That was then. The concepts remain the same, but the structure looks entirely different, right? We are not, we don't have guys down at Hypo. Well, we probably do have the, the equivalent of something going on there in, in Oahu, but it's completely different with AI and machine learning and different methods of communication and our different methods of uh, conveying information. So what does information and decision dominance look like today, Paco, and what are the threats to it? Well, I'll start with saying that, and I'm glad we start with information uh, and decision dominance first of the three topics, because when you it's really hard to get inside someone's mind and, and know what they're thinking, right? 
Uh, in fact, it's so hard, it's just not possible. So, so you have to look for the output of what people are thinking to figure out what they are thinking. And this is why uh, in the intelligence community, um, like the most sensitive secrets that a nation has, it's, it's, it's the sources and methods of how it's collecting information. That is the most sensitive thing that a nation has. Uh, that's where you get all your top secret stuff is all sources and methods. How do I know that this to be true? Or how do I have a high confidence that this is going on or this may happen? And here are my, my indications and warnings that, that derive this confidence level of this thing that may happen. So predicting the future is really hard. Um, and that's why there's billions of dollars of resources and thousands and thousands of people that do this professionally. Um, so I'm none of that. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, nor, nor am I. Yeah, that was a, that was a long windup yeah. for a, uh, a soft pitch, but uh, yeah. So I'm I'm none of that. Um, but what I can tell you is that when you probably the you, you look at intelligence failures, there's there's a lot of really good lessons that you can you can pick apart that really inform like how you may think that you are dominating with your decision-making and information only to understand or realize later that you're actually wrong. So you're a, you have very high confidence of being wrong, <laughs> which is just, you know, bad. Uh, the Iraqi invasion is a perfect example. Um, we had very, very high confidence intelligence that wasn't actually correct at all. And that was the, the, you know, the foundational premise of the war of invading Iraq in 2003 was uh, chemical weapons, right? Uh, so the intelligence failures, and you know, there's stuff to be said like Israel right now, which is generally prizes itself of having some of the best intelligence collection in the world because it's surrounded by people who don't like them. Um, and you see what's going on right now in Gaza, like how how did they get surprised? Um, so sources and methods matter, and then there is that level of, of predictability or unpredictability. And so when you collect more and more data, that data, as long as you have a way to parse it and categorize it and catalog it, you can start making sense of large sets of data in a way that's more automated. And this is where you come into machine learning and, and things like that. Like you could build, for instance, um, I think we'll assume that everyone understands what chat GPT is now. But you could take, for instance, like, how do I get inside the mind of, uh, you know, uh, pick someone, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, Xi Jinping, right? How do you, how do you get in, inside of his mind? Like, well, if you could take everything that he's ever said, every speech, every paper with his name on it, everything he's ever said and use that in a large language model. And now you would have your own chat GPT of just that person and you could actually interact and create inferences using artificial intelligence and use that as a way to build personas to try to create predictions of, you know, why are you doing this? What's your end state? And, and I'm not saying that it's uh, high confidence, but it, it definitely helps frame and give context and meaning for humans and then go back and, and look at the intelligence that they're collecting and maybe in a different lens. And so that's where I think some of the most powerful things are going to happen is you we're going to use AI to build these personas of key figures to figure out like why is that politician doing what they're doing? Uh, turns out not all politicians are crazy. There there there's sometimes a reason that they're doing crazy things, uh, and you could parse that out by just building a large language model of everything they've ever said, 
it's so so that's probably the, the most powerful example off the top of my head that I can think of. Yeah, I know I think that's fascinating and I think to your point even you know regardless of uh you know what you think their history might have been or what you think they may be doing it's almost like when you take one of those pre-employment personality tests right your company wants to find out how how you're going to fit in this team and the tests themselves are made so that if you try and game the test that even tells them something yeah yeah i I think i think ai and chat gpt are going to get to a point where they will be able to tell because you know we, you can't make that cardinal sin of assuming your enemy is dumb, right? Just assume your enemy is smart. And if you if your enemy's like, well, they're going to try to get inside my head, so I'm going to say some things that are totally off the mark to try and mislead That's them. That's the madman theory, right? That was uh, right. uh, back in the Cold War. It's like, well, we're going to say conflicting things all the time, so there's no level of predictability of what is actually going to happen, which then provides this new layer of deterrence because you, you 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 you're not confident in what is might happen or result of your actions so the madman theory yeah <laughs> yeah but now are we at a point where you know before you couldn't you know well you i imagine you could have but it would have been a herculean effort to take everything that person ever said that was public record and try and sort it and and collate it that's just one example though of how we can do that. I think we'll probably even be able to do that with things from uh, human intent to uh, hardware performance, right? If we see this do this at this point and we see it do that at that point and there's so much information collected, it will lead to this dominance in the information arena, which allows dominance in the decision-making arena because you can beat a numerically or technologically stronger force if you control the pace of operations and keep the initiative. And um, I won't get on a soapbox other than mention it exists that there's a lot of discussion of the German armored or panzer force during the Blitzkrieg. And uh, they, on paper, should have absolutely had their clocks cleaned by the French and, and the British, definitely the French and British combined. And they didn't because they were able to make decisions more quickly and react more quickly. I won't, I won't get on this soapbox other than say that is truly uh, of a fact of human history and war, that if you can decide and act faster, you can overcome almost all material shortcomings. Yeah, and, and again, uh, I'm a big fan when uh, dealing with problem sets in, uh, in life uh, professionally is, you know, we, we create a list of facts and assumptions and the more assumptions that you can create and write down, it actually provides some insights of how you're maybe misframing the problem itself. And then, you know, once you capture those assumptions, you try to turn assumptions into facts. Uh, so you go and so you can make a better decision. So uh, to your point uh, from the, the, the Germans, the, the flaw uh, in the French logic, uh, which is a key part of the conversation, again, I'm not going to get into the, the whole history of it, but Fran- the, the French were like, well, this is this forest. And they have, there's no way you can bring armored vehicles to this forest. So we're just not going to defend it. <laughs> and like, well, right. that yeah. was a bad assumption. <laughs> that was a bad assumption. I think you're exactly right. And in information dominance is going to depend, lar- not large, I should say largely, there it will be a huge component of information dominance that we can change assumptions into facts or change assumptions into bad assumptions and then change our planning. But 
even with information and decision dominance, you still need to be able to communicate the information you receive and the decisions you make to and from your various nodes and your commanders. And that's the next thing I think that is going to be crucial in future warfare is assured communications. We are so spoiled as a Western society right now. Yeah, we right? are. <laughs> uh, uh, you, you and I are using a technology that I think would have been unfathomable when we were teenagers. Uh, we coordinated doing this over handheld devices that seem like a 1960s Star Trek tricorder uh, on steroids, right? We are so spoiled by our immune, our ability to communicate with one another. I don't think the average person realizes what a tenuous web of systems that relies upon. And that when you when you take that away, it's worse than not having had it in the first place. Because I don't want to call it a crutch, but it's, it's a leg. And when one leg is swept out from under you, you now have lost a large part of the initiative. So let's talk about assured communications. I, I think we've Talk, I think everyone understands why it's important just from those brief statements. But what do communications currently and in the future look like? What like what nodes are we talking about? The, clearly, there's voice, there's visual, there's electromagnetic spectrum, and even just stopping there on electromagnetic, look at the variations we've got. Yeah, there's there's definitely. I think you can't have that conversation until you talk about explicit versus implicit communication. Right, so explicit is like I'm passing information, like detailed information back and forth. The army in the past, call it seven years or so, um, they've realized like, hey, every one of these handheld radios that I have, as soon as I transmit, I'm emitting a signal that is now a target for the enemy. The enemy knows exactly where we're all at because if you're emitting a signal into the environment, you know, electromagnetic spectrum, it can be detected by something if it's in the right place and, and you have a system to do that. And we do that all the time with other people. So uh, like your cell phone, you can track people by their cell phones because it's emitting and it's it's got a geolocation. It does stuff with cell phone towers. The same thing with uh, military equipment. So when and how to communicate uh, is very, very, very important. And it's getting more important. Um, you And it, it shapes... It gets into, uh, we'll talk about a little bit, I think, uh, mission command or command by negation and things like that. If I can't communicate, what is the implicit guidance that I have provided that will allow them to do what I want them to do, or at least apply the intent of what I wanted to do? And I might not know what they're doing or how they're doing it, but I'm getting updates when, when, you know, when you can do it, just like how a submarine kind of works, right? There's not, they're not in constant communication, um, but they operate as a team kind of isolated. Um, but to your point, yeah, there's, uh, I, I think you're going to see a shift, um, from more traditional communication devices to things that are optical, um, or they're directional. And so you have, uh, uh, like string networks instead of mesh networks and things like that, uh, which it, nothing's free though, right? They're all, they're all trades. So, you know, a mesh network is very resilient. A string network is not, uh, cause it's by nature a string. But the string network is is hard to detect, um, whereas a mesh network, it's just omnidirectional. It's transmitting everywhere, so everyone knows where everyone's at. So there's there's definitely tactical trade-offs when you get into the, the communication technology. Uh, optical is probably the, some of the more interesting stuff going on right now. There's a lot of good stuff going on in space, uh, so laser terminals. So you can't really 
detect it or jam it unless you're in or near the beam width of the transmitter or receiver. So it's the point-to-point communication uh, is, is a very compelling argument, but there's obviously a ton of technology to align those lasers, uh, the transmitters and receivers, um, how, how it works on a battlefield, you know, in the mud and the rain, you know, we'll see. Uh, space is a pretty good example to start with. Um, but yeah, there's, there's definitely, there's definitely trade-offs to be made depending on the volume of information. You know, if I'm going to full like video feed, if I want to pipe that around the world versus, you know, take a snapshot of this is the ship, here's the whole number, like send that, like the bandwidth requirements are completely different too. Right. And it's not, you know, we've talked about just now, uh, electromagnetic and moving to optical and it, it's everything. Cause you, you, I think Ukraine will come back to that. An example of things that at the beginning people didn't think much about, which is, and I will say the Ukrainian, uh, forces have what I think is a very well-developed IO structure and campaign going on. They, they have very highly curated photos oh, yeah. of what's going on. And what, what has come out of that also is, and I, you've talked about it on your show before, is they have taken the blurring out everything but the subject in the photo because the geolocation capability of the background of a photo is providing intelligence in and of itself. So there's all these different ways we need to look at information and safeguarding information so that we have assured communications. Yeah, but, that's exactly right. You can use a background of a photo and you can use AI and it'll tell you where on earth that photo was taken. Right. And even if you can't maybe strike that target in the moment, and sometimes you can, to your point earlier about AI and building patterns, if you start to identify even latency in the time for example this artillery battery set up here and i know i have a photo there and then i know they set up at a different place at this time you can start to build a pattern which helps you get inside their decision loop yeah you can say hey based on and you can even break it down to sleep cycles and shifts of people hey they have they have 20 people based on how they're moving and and what and and how far they're moving that looks like they're sleeping in two shifts of t- 10 people each uh, based on the amount of just stuff they can move um, because they sleep eight hours each this is the time cycles of the cadence of how they move you know, and this is how long it takes them to move so there's a ton of inferences that you can start to make right um and then you had mentioned command by negation versus command by direction and this is something just to describe when i w- showed up as a naval officer to the army staff college and we started doing scenarios and army officers would look at me and say, why are, why are you doing that? And I said, well, comms are jammed. I have my commander's intent and I it's command by negation. I'm going to tell my boss what I'm doing. And if he doesn't say no, I'm going to do it. That includes comms jamming. And the army guys were like, but you can't do that, right? It, it's, it's a structural organizational philosophy that makes a lot of sense. It, it, if an army officer sees something and decides he has the right idea historically and pivots his company to the left, let's go back to that civil war example, right? Uh, he could completely open a flank and turn the battlefield. It makes a lot of sense why the army likes command by direction. If you go back to that same time frame, when the fastest means of communication was the ship that, that the naval officer was traveling on, he had to have letters of direction to go to the Barbary Coast, if you will, and, hey, hey 
uh, if you see this situation, you will do this, and you had to basically take your commander's intent and, and do that. What what does that mean for the modern era and assured communications? It means that different structures, different military services, different missions will by necessity employ command by negation versus command by direction. And you can't do everything in command by negation. It just doesn't work. So you must have assured communications because your commander's intent only takes you so far. And the man on the ground, if you will, has to be able to report back what he sees. And if we bring this back full circle to what we've been talking about, power projection, power projection in the Pacific theater and hypersonics, to be very specific, you made the point very correctly that, well, now if you see the boost phase of what historically would have definitely been a ballistic missile, is it or is it not now? Who can see it? Who can talk about it? Who can tell someone what to do about it? Because uh, there's a whole other argument about launch on warning and and uh, deterrence and what what you deal with there. But if you're operating in a comms degraded environment and you see a half dozen ballistic missile launches, now what do you do? You have to be able to talk back and forth. And I think the human condition the the average human even in the military is not even if they're trained to they're going to want to believe it's not a general nuclear attack right in fact we've we see at least one incident in the soviet union where uh a soviet officer back was it 83 82 or 83 chose to believe his intuition rather than the system and he was right and prevented world war three from happening (laughs) <laughs> yeah. But what does yeah, what does that mean now when those missiles launch and the person is is sort of going I want to believe it's a hypersonic missile launch, but I don't know if it's a hypersonic or a ballistic missile launch. This is now given more time to the aggressor if you will. The defense permutations are now going to be delayed. So this is a very specific example of why assured communications are critical, and you just scale that up from a very tactical act that has strategic implications. It goes through the entirety of the strategic, operational, tactical um, biosphere, if you will. Yeah, there's there's a ton to unpack there. Uh, uh, since you, you mentioned the Air Force, I kind of chuckled a little bit, like, oh, you know, every service has their their you know their, their cultural issues. Uh, so the Air Force, although the youngest, it. it so it came out of the army. Uh, so real quick side story, the, the army operates on army regulations, right? They're AR or something's right. They're all AR as well. When the air force back, you know, back in the the fifties and sixties specifically, um, they adopted that and they had AFRs, air force regulations. And at the time, so the fifties and sixties, it was a nuclear force. So fighters, conventional, it was like, yeah, yeah, it's nice, but bombers and nuclear warheads is why the Air Force exists. And so all of those Air Force regulations, culturally, it's a, this is exactly how you do everything. There will be no deviation. There is, you will not think, you will act. And we're going to hold you to these standards. And that that nuclear posture that the Air Force was born out of, um, and there's a few... 
uh, strategic air command was basically driving everything at the time. Uh, we could have a whole episode just about culture and that. But what that ended up doing is it, even though they eventually changed the the things to AFIs, Air Force Instruction, it that culture never changed. And so uh, the 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 joke, if you look at uh, Air Force Aviation and Naval Aviation, you put the books next to each other. And you go, why is the Air Force, why are the books of the Air Force like 10 times as big as the Navy for the same thing? Like, well, the Navy just says what you can't do. And the Air Force says, this is exactly what you do. Uh, so they're, they're, they're written from a different cultural perspective, even though it's the same stuff. So, um, but, but I say that to say that you're right. Like there's like negation and mission command only go so far. I mean, you can ask the Air Up Mission Command. They've been trying to figure it out since the eighties, um, and the Air Force just now, uh, just this year, actually, they're, we're, they're embracing in doctrine mission command. I'm like, okay, well, and, and I get it. They're trying to finally like, get out of this cultural conundrum they are from the nuclear age in the 60s. Like, no, I need, I need an adaptable thinking force that can, where I don't have to explicitly tell you exactly what to do. But uh, that only goes so far because if you're not organized to do that, it, you can't do it. And so uh, the Air Force, for example, say it adopted a uh, mission command philosophy, which it's trying to do. And you, I have commander's intent. Here are the resources, like execute. Well, the only person that has the resources in a theater to do that is the commander, like the per, the four-star issuing the order. Because the way that the Air Force structured itself, even the wing commanders, like, you know, I have a, there's a wing commander over here who has all the tankers, there's a wing commander over there who has all the fighters. <laughs> like, well, the tankers need the fighters, and the, and the it, they have to coordinate. And so, like, there's they're not. Uh, we, they used to have composite wings, uh, and they got rid of that to save money. And there's a whole again, how how you are structured uh, really drives how you can communicate and and how you communicate. So, you you have to have both parts of the equation. Right, and I think that's a great. Um segue to what what is sort of the last part of today's episode and i will i will tell everyone we've now talked a lot about information and decision dominance and assured communications and given no even recommendations for solutions or anything well that's coming keep in <laughs> mind this is this this is a like dozen episode series so so we'll get there we're really sort of setting the stage but to your point you've got uh, yeah, I think that's a great example. So so the Air Force is trying to go through this sea change, if you'll pardon the mixed metaphor there, on how they do things. It, it's sort of funny to me because as a junior naval officer, um, you're never really exposed to the Navy planning process, right? Like it, it, at some point you're like, wait, the Navy has a planning process? It wasn't even mentioned, right, in ROTC or... I don't think it was mentioned at the academy. You you get it when you go and do staff things. But then when I was exposed to it, a lot of it was second nature because it's just how we operate. It's, it's how we work because ships are that integrated structure and ships in a battle group, that integrated structure. But to your point, as we change as structures, and as you said earlier, if that change needs to happen, it will happen so much faster once we get into conflict, right? Like it will just, it will drive that change so quickly. 
that hopefully, hopefully. we need to be able to hopefully <laughs> right well what what would we, we fought right yeah hopefully we we fought basically 20 years in the middle east um and just kind of our many running jokes uh, about the different services but the air force they they live off of a 72 hour planning cycle for the air tasking order which is like provide resources well in the middle east it's doing close air support so who's the customer the army the army has a 48 hour planning cycle so the air force has to know what the army's doing before the army knows what it's doing and for 20 <laughs> years, no one ever figured that out. So there's, there, they just did workarounds. Uh, so yeah, you can fix it or I, not. I have, <laughs> I have this maybe misplaced optimism <laughs> that if it's a pure level conflict, it'll yeah. drive us to this solution, right? But no, I know exactly what you're talking about. There's so much of that. Well, I'll do it this way, and we, I, yeah, yeah, I won't go with the same stories because they just they don't fit here. But trying to, trying to fit a navy you know, peg and an air force peg side by side into two army holes, if you will, (laughs) was, uh, just bizarre. But in any case, as we adapt and as we learn more about technology and technology evolves, we need to be able to train, right? Because right now sitting here today and I, by we, I don't mean, you know, Roger and Paco. I mean, the guys who are out at places like Nellis and Fallon and the fleet training centers and NTC for the army. We only know what we know. We need to have a training paradigm that is flexible and we need to have a training structure that's flexible. And so it needs to be advanced enough, the training to be meaningful, but it also needs to be adaptable. And, And what we can look at by using the past as prologue, if you will, and I brought up the zero specifically is in the early part of the Pacific war, we found ourselves, we, the U.S., found ourselves outmatched between our fighters and the Japanese Zero because of the way we were using them. And and Jimmy Thatch, you can look him up if you don't know who oh, he yeah. is, came up with something called the Thatch Weave that turned the weaknesses of the Wildcat, in his case, but it worked for other aircraft as well, into a strength. And then we were able to train that because it was, we, it was as simple as promulgating that knowledge throughout the fleet and throughout the army air forces and having people practice it. You just got up and you went and and you flew. We fast forward that, what, 20, 25 years, and suddenly the U.S. forces aren't doing so well in uh, Southeast Asia over um, Vietnam. And so this is what really leads to the the creation of Top Gun and Red Flag, both of which have highly instrumented ranges so that you can really determine what was going on. And what came out of that as well was dissimilar air combat and using, uh, as the name implies, dissimilar airframes. And if you go back to some of the things happening in the Nevada desert in the 80s, actual hostile airframes or hostile sourced airframes, if you Ooh, will. Let's talk about that. That's a... Uh... Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a key you want to part anchor of on that for a minute. Yeah, yeah, actually, let's anchor there for a minute. Uh, I, I want to, uh, I want to actually touch on uh, on old Jimmy Thatch for just a second, um, because, in, in you, you you highlighted it, but just to foot stomp it. So, the the aircraft, so the Navy's uh, Wildcat fighter, w- was not a good aircraft compared to the Zero, and so the the thatch weave basically said, well, instead of thinking of this as an aircraft versus aircraft problem, let's think of it as a team versus aircraft problem. And that's where the thatch weave came from, which is predictable, basically like weave turns. 
And so if, if, a, if a zero tried to uh, roll up behind a wildcat, the wildcat was always turning to put whatever was behind his flight path into the firing direction of another wildcat. So that it was very, very simple. On the east front, oh, by the way, the exact same thing happened where the, the British uh, Battle of Britain, uh, most of the aircraft were lost were because they just didn't have the training and tactics. Uh, they, they won the battle because they had home field advantage, really. But tactically, it was, uh, it was a disaster. So they were flying in um, uh, VIC formations, which the Air Force still teaches. Um, to a point, there's a lot of formations. But the VIC formation is we have one flight lead, and then all the other wingmen just follow the flight lead. Like, that's it. All right, so it wasn't really a team. It was just a group of fighters together. Well, the, the Germans, they had this thing called the finger four, which is I have two flight leads and they each have a wingman and then they work together as a team of, of two, two ships. And the, they destroyed the British VIX and they actually had a name and I can't pronounce it in, uh, in German, but the running joke during the battle of Britain from the, from the Germans was they would call the British fighters rows of idiots. Like <laughs> that is a, that is a historical fact. So yeah, it's a tactics and adaption. Um, and I, I, I t- so that's the, your world war II. If you want to jump towards a uh, uh, top gun and red flag, um, have donut and have drill like this. So the reason the, and you could go back and we can have a, a whole episode up, but the primary reason top gun was established was because the, tactics that were being learned under these exploitation programs there was no way to communicate them to people so they had to bring people to top gun to show them the tactics that they had been developing based off of two um, exploitation programs one of them was called uh, project have drill which was the mig 17 and then uh, have donut was the mig 21 uh, which we got from israel and so we actually flew them under in secrecy uh, it, in, from Groom Lake. This is where the, the Groom Lake uh, container came from. They established this container of no-fly zone with the big red square in the middle of the Nellis Desert um, over, you know, Area 51. And this is what they did. And so Top Gun was established to to disseminate those tactics for dissimilar air combat training. And that came out of the, you know, alt-report and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's I, that's a great point with uh, the red no fly box, right? Because why did that exist? Because we wanted to keep that a secret, and we we wanted to maintain that information advantage of what we had and what we didn't have. So as we look at uh, advanced and adaptable training in the future, the world has changed so much since the 1960s. We we had a monopoly on overhead imagery for the most part for a large part of the cold war so as long as we kept people from flying or potentially walking into those areas uh we could keep those things secret and we can't do that anymore we we have to assume that there are other means of surveillance and intelligence gathering they're going to see what we're doing yeah to your point even even as recent as maybe 10 years ago you could there are certain places in the United States that are blurred out of satellite imagery like Google Earth. Uh, and, and the United States was able to do that because they're all U.S. companies that were providing the imagery. Well, that's not the case anymore. Like there's you the can case. see anything on in any place on Earth uh, just by, you know, getting your credit card out. And, and you know, five minutes later here, I want to see the site at this time of day. And yeah, that's that's it. It's that easy. It's right there. So 
you know, what does advanced training look like? And, you know, we're not going to go deep into this other than talk about it's something we'll talk about later in the series is this advanced training needs to exist in a place where you minimize your spillage of information on what you're doing. And maybe that means that location is is virtual, right? Maybe you're not doing it for real. You can't learn to drive ships without driving ships. And Imagine I, that. I'm not a, I'm not a pilot <laughs> or a flight officer, but I would only imagine it goes triple if if not, you know, base 10 for aircraft to say that. Yeah, it, yeah I completely agree. I think the difference though, um, which is a, is a good way to end this uh, this episode, the difference is that, you know, 10 or 20 years ago when the, the Navy tried that, that they had the luxury of like, well, you know, let's see what happens. Uh, it's not a luxury anymore. It's a, it's a necessity because, you know, you think about red flag, for instance, it happens on the Nellis range. It was, it was resourced and designed at a time to basically prepare people for their first 10 combat missions. And so they had a, they had a, um, adversary airs that were representative of the threat they had surface-to-air missile systems that were representative of the threat, sometimes the actual threats um, through exploitation. They put them out on the range. And you could actually, like, if you could squint just right and you go, yeah, this is what, like, the Vietnam War look, looked like. Like, great. Um, and where this is where Desert Storm parts of it look like. Like, yeah, that's great. Um, that world no longer exists. You Today, you can put a modern... Russian or Chinese surface-to-air missile system in the in the center of the range, and it it can hit everything on the entire range. <laughs> so the the G, just a you can't make the range bigger either. Uh, so so there's a just the geometry and geography is is the first problem. Um, you that the Nellis Range is although it's very big, it's when you look at real life scenarios, it's tiny, like uh, tiny, tiny. Um, even like Syria, you think of Syria as like a small, uh, a relatively small country, but it's not. <laughs> it's not at all. And in, in the when uh, I was one of the initial, I was one of the initial people involved uh, in Operation Inherent Resolve, and I remember being at the planning table and be like, "Oh, this is just like it's just like a red flag at Nellis. We'll have a we're the good guys in the east. We're gonna hold over here in the border. We're gonna strike targets in the west, and we're gonna come back." And I'm like, "No, no, no, no." Like so. We, we actually got out a Nellis chart to show the difference. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is like five times the size of the Nellis range. Like, oh, yeah, we're not, this is going to be a problem, guys. So it's like, if you were to put that in the United States, the the uh, inherent resolve problem, this is just a very one example, you'd have to, like, your tankers would be in Utah. <laughs> your command and control's in Utah, and your targets are, you know, at the Nellis range and back and forth. Like, oh, yeah, that's completely different. Uh and extrapolate that to the Pacific, yeah. right? Now we're going to try and replicate our fight in the Pacific. And that's probably meaning that, you know, you're basing things in England to strike targets in, in Nellis, right? Like it's, it's completely different. There's very few people or communities that, that train like full rehearsal on time and scale and duration. Um, the one community that does a uh, special shout out is the B2 bomber community. They actually do like 30 hour sims, it's, which is incredible. Like you go into this building, like All right, I'll see you in a day and a half and they do sleep cycles and, and it, to, to actually like run through what a whole mission would feel like, uh, you know, that doesn't happen really anywhere else. Just the time and resources. No, in, in full, full credit to them, because I'm, I'm not trying to say we did it, but I just understand the 
complexity. The Navy does something called a fast cruise, especially if you if you've come out of the shipyard or you've uh, not been underway for a long time. You basically bring everyone on the ship, you close the brow, say no one's leaving, and you just pretend to be underway for a day oh. for 24 hours. And it's really just to get your watch rotations different and do all that. But I'm not even going to hold a candle because I had you know 505 to 560 feet of destroyer cruiser and some place to go and eat and i had my place i would normally sleep i was not you know pretending to be in my b2 cockpit for <laughs> for 30 hours of, of operations right yeah and it, it might it, it might be a little bit less than that but uh it, it's definitely in the in the very like incredibly painfully long duration well, I'm, I'm sure <laughs> i'm sure with the with the with the brief the run-up oh, the yeah. debrief right it's it's a long time so then i yeah to close out i'd say the the other piece of that is as we've alluded to and explicitly stated before, we won't know what we know until the balloon goes up, so to speak. So whatever these training environments need to be, they need to be adaptable enough that we can go ahead and change. So if you can imagine building Nellis or building Fallon or back in the day Miramar, these training scenarios without the Vietnam War, without having those aircraft, because, and I won't even speculate on what we do or don't have, what we definitely don't have is the whole integrated system of how the enemy's going to behave. Yeah, and even if you even if you had it, like you have, you know, an aircraft, you don't have a squadron of aircraft. You're not, you're not truly replicating. You're not truly replicating. So if you build a training environment, you go to war and you find out your training environment is wrong, you have to be able to pivot and change your training environment to reflect what you're really seeing. Yeah, so. that, that is 100%. And I think the the Air Force is at a very particular crossroads with this now. It's It was a long time coming. I think the distractions um, from the Middle East kind of made it a lower priority. And as you get back to, you know, what is the purpose of Red Flag? It's like, well it's not mission rehearsal, you know, it's airmanship and you get a little bit of the fog and friction of, you know, a bunch of aircraft or radios chatter and stuff. But I mean, that's, that's not going to make or break the, you know, tactics, developing tactics. Like you can't do that. You have to have like a real environment and you can't, even if you had the geography and the the land to do it, you couldn't afford to, um, or you just couldn't acquire or afford to acquire the, the threat density or the threat quality uh, there's some air defense emulator programs that the Air Force has were, um, and they may be canceled by now, but as of a couple of years ago, the the replicator um, signal generator for like, you know, a surface air missile was more expensive than going to buy an actual like bad guy missile defense system. And it's just the right, it's just an emulator. Like, how is this possible? We can't, so you can't, you can't afford to just, you know, dump billions and billions and billions of dollars into this, this, you know, physical force that you don't have land to put it on anyways. But if you, even if you did just the sustainment of that would just be incredible. And oh, by the way, it's, those are all reactive purchases because you see someone field something and then you go build something to emulate it so you can train against it, which is like years and years. Like the time cycle of that is, you know, five, 10 years. You don't have that kind of time. Right. And yeah, we can't make the mistake that again, our enemy's not dumb. They don't field something, you know, perfect. We got it just right. Let's let it sit statically for the next five to 10 years while we're trying to build that. They're improving. Oh, China's a great example. They they roll out probably like a new air-to-air missile a year at this point. And 
they'll roll it out. Like we're, we don't know. Like, and so, uh, not to spoil the illusion of intelligence, but like when an aircraft takes off, like you kind of don't actually know what missiles it's carrying when it took off. Like you just don't have that kind of intelligence. And so you, you, you typically account for the worst possible case scenario. And so if China is, is unveiling like a new air to air missile every year, it's like, well, I don't know which missiles are on which aircraft. And so I plan for the worst case scenario, which is like, so the, the strategic, um, rationale of china doing that even like oh we're not going to produce thousands of them i just need to produce like 10 <laughs> i'm just going to keep producing different variations and just to mess with us uh, <laughs> just to keep them off balance yeah. but <laughs> what well, that so that that i think that sort of brings us full circle right because we've just to, to wrap the episode uh we're operating in a whole wholly new environment. We can in, be informed by the knowledge of the past, but we can't fall into the trap that the U.S. seems to do all the time, which is perfect fighting the last war, right? We, we need to plan for the future war. It's going to need new tactics. It's going to need new training strategies. But even if you have those, the intelligence and communications, that assured information dominance, the assured communications are going to be key and at the end of the day, what you just said, you got to be able to communicate back what you saw and adapt to it. And even training doesn't stop because because the war started, right? I think that's something that people outside the profession sometimes forget. And, and to a large degree, you can see how in the last worldwide peer-level conflict, World War II, Japan and Germany lost the initiative on that especially in the air. It, it truly happened on the ground with their ground forces as well and with their navies. They they lost the ability to train their forces during the war to the level they trained uh, prior to the war. And you can see that in the performance. In the U.S. and its allies were able to just ramp up their training efforts. Yeah, one, one thing I think that is an enduring philosophy is that, you know, hope is not a tactic. So <laughs> expecting... Uh, a force to rise to the occasion um, for which they're not prepared is not is not a good idea, right? That is not a winning strategy. Uh, hope is not a tactic. You could expect that they will instead fall back to their level of training and preparedness. And so when you go back to how you train, it it matters so much more now than it has probably in a long like generations because how we actually train is, is has to change because we can't keep training the same way we've we've done for generations so there's a there's a significant crossroads and the reason the training is important is um if you want to project power which is kind of the, the theme of this episode and you want to do that in a way that's credible and this is the whole point of projecting power it has to be credible as a deterrence you have to know how to train to, to to provide that credibility, and so if you don't have a way to meaningfully train, I would argue that you do not have a meaningful deterrence to project. I think you are spot on, and we will we'll wrap with that. And appreciate you being here, Paco. Next time we come back, we'll be flipping this coin and looking at this a little bit more from the Chinese side uh, with what we're calling unsinkable aircraft carriers. China is actually building 
man-made islands as well as leveraging disputed islands, uh, especially in that first island chain region. So we'll be back discussing that. And I look forward to having that conversation. Thanks, Roger. I appreciated the chat today. All right. I hope you all enjoyed episode one of On Future War. This series will be a marathon, not a sprint, and we wanted to lay a lot of groundwork here in episode one. So let's take this opportunity to recap today's episode and talk about how it fits into the future discussion. It's been almost a century since the U.S. fought in a peer-level conflict, that being World War II. And in World War II, one of our two major theaters of war was the Pacific, just as it's likely to be in near-term future conflict, though the opponents have changed. In today's episode, we look back at how the changes in technology, especially detection systems and hypersonic weapons, changed the theories and tactics that were successful in defending against trans-Pacific power projection in World War II. Many of the assumptions that were made from our successes in World War II shaped our maritime strategy and tactics in the Cold War, which still serve as the basis of our operational plans today, but those new technologies may render our tactics invalid. Specifically, can we still rely on forward island and land bases to support and supplant carrier-based aviation and their supporting ships? For over 80 years, we've considered almost all of our support bases in the Pacific to be untouchable sanctuaries for refueling, replenishment, and repair, as well as for forward staging of troops, but this may no longer be true. This is in large part due to the advent of hypersonic weapons, which not only place bases that were essentially unreachable by conventional forces well within the range of weapons that not only are highly effective, but also place a possibly catastrophic strain on the systems met to defend those bases. We went on to discuss the need to daisy-chain, if you will, logistics and manpower across the vastness of the Pacific, and alluded to the future conversations that will discuss U.S. plans to do just that, and then wrapped up with some threads that will weave themselves throughout the series, the need for information and decision dominance, assured communications, and advanced and adaptable training. Regardless of future changes in technology, those three things will remain constant requirements to succeed in war. Building on this base of Episode 1, we'll discuss China's man-made islands, called by some unsinkable aircraft carriers, which in many ways is the opposite side of the coin to Episode 1, as these unsinkable aircraft carriers are one approach to dealing with the very challenges we discuss today. The first phase of the series will culminate in Episode 3, in which we'll discuss proposed changes to the United States Marine Corps to better face the challenges of fighting and winning in the extended littorals of the Pacific, specifically to better deal with the challenges to U.S. power production discussed in Episode 1. The following phases of the series will build upon these concepts, with Phase 2 being tactical technology focusing on topics such as 5th and 6th gen aircraft, GPS reliance and alternatives, and future ship design, all of which must enable the U.S. to face the challenges previously recounted to successfully project power in the Pacific. Phase 3 will then move a step up the tactical operational strategic spectrum to strategic support in conversations including logistics support, weapon supply attrition, and computer chip vulnerabilities specific to operations we discussed today. Unlike previous wars in which physical territory had to be taken to facilitate further attacks into an opponent's homeland production capability, modern technology makes those assets vulnerable regardless of physical presence. 
allowing yesterday's commerce warfare and strategic bombing to re be replaced by cyber war. The series will close out with a phase focused on the techno-political aspects of future war, in particular artificial intelligence and machine learning and how those will change our philosophy of escalation and de-escalation, which will in turn fundamentally change the way we look at avoiding, controlling, and concluding future war. It's going to be a fascinating journey, and I look forward to sharing it with you. If you've enjoyed this program, you can find additional commentary, interviews, and in-depth series on current affairs and military aviation at Authentic Media on YouTube or on your podcast provider of choice. On Future War is brought to you through partnership with Cubic Corporation. For over 50 years, Cubic has been facilitating warfighter readiness to prevail on night one and beyond.